0: Well, go ahead and open up your Bibles to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 1. going to be in Isaiah chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, and then we will go to Isaiah 42. And I am going to reference Isaiah 59 a little bit later. Well, let's stand together for the reading of God's word. Isaiah chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. And then we will go to Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 4. Isaiah 1, these are the words of God Wash yourselves, purify yourselves, remove the evil of your deeds. From before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, execute justice for the orphan, plead for the widow. In Isaiah 42. 1 through 4. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul is well pleased. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A crushed reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will bring forth justice and truth. He will not be faint or crushed until he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. Let's pray. Our Father in God, the source of all light, by your word, you give light to the soul. Pour out on us the spirit of wisdom and understanding that our hearts and minds may be opened through Christ our Lord. Amen. Be seated. I want to spend some time this morning dealing with the biblical doctrine of abolitionism, taking a break from our study and exposition of Genesis 1 through 11. And uh, so we're going to deal just this morning with this doctrine. And I I did say it's a biblical doctrine, a doctrine of abolitionism. Uh, Whenever you throw this obstreperous suffix known as "-ism," onto the back of of a word, (laughs) you're bound to find someone whose blood pressure has just increased a touch. There are several "-isms that uh, should make us shudder. Anytime we deal with an "-ism", we have to remember that one, the suffix itself isn't ethically nor inherently wrong or distasteful in any way. Uh, Two, defining our terms will help us discern whether the "-ism is of some advantage." As always, the dictionary belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ, which means it's ours to steward and hopefully steward well. Additionally, the word abolition is obviously related to the word abolish. To abolish something is to put an end to said thing. The thing in question is eradicated and extinguished. It's simply no more. It ceases. It stops. Now, regarding the abolition of abortion, the evil sin of child sacrifice, we want to to legally terminate the action of those who seek to terminate others. That's the concept. Uh, Terminating the action, the performance of this wicked sin, uh, we want to terminate that action because they are the ones who are terminating image bearers. And we want the state-sanctioned murder of our preborn neighbors to no longer be the case. We don't want it to continue unabated. Abolition thus, as a word, abolition, formalizes the concept here. The abolish is, is a verb. It's the verb. Abolition is the noun. And here comes the fun part. When the suffix in view, the "-ism", is attached to the noun... Moving it from abolition to abolitionism, it makes the noun more invigorating uh, and lively. The noun is brought into a uh, is it's brought into a, a new way, a new format, if you will. Essentially, systematizing it, making it blossom into a more elaborate framework. The ism moves it from general. We just think of a general noun. It moves it into something with specificity. It's specific now. It takes the concept and develops theologically rich categories which are meant to be applied to certain situations. So the ism gives us categories, it gives us properties, it gives us something to work with. When we put the ism onto abolition, it gives it structure, it gives it legs, if you will. For example, we know from 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, we know that Jesus Christ is the abolitionist. is the abolitionist. The Apostle Paul says that our Savior Christ Jesus, quote, abolished death. The words even used there, abolished death. That is, the problem of death, uh, both covenantally and physically, the problem of death given to Adam and Eve, has been put away, has been put to death. The problem of death has been put to death in Christ. So death's Death blow has been given because of the work of Jesus Christ in his substitutionary atonement, his substitutionary death, and his victorious resurrection. I think it was John Owen who wrote the uh, little book, uh, The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. I recommend that one too. So thus, we can conclude, based on what Paul says here in 2 uh, Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, that Jesus is an abolitionist. He is the abolitionist of death. Death is extinguished. Death is put to an end. Death is over. So, therefore, we are, of course, in good company when it comes to self identifying as an abolitionist. And I know people will, will perhaps shudder at that too and say, well, I don't, like, even born again Christian is sort of a superlative. Why, why do you need to add something? To, by definition, Christian, uh, to be a Christian is to be born again. Why do we need to say born again Christian as if it's a legitimate category? Why do I have to say, well, I'm an abolitionist when I can say I'm a Christian? Well, I would argue that those two things uh, go hand in hand, and to state one is to imply the other. Now, before we get to the the text here in Isaiah, I want to give you a quick definition on the front end to, to help us set our minds in the right place. Abolitionism, as a systematic concept, is simply the biblical doctrine of repentance The biblical doctrine of repentance set forth within the context of national sin and lawlessness. I'll say that again. Abolitionism is simply the biblical doctrine of repentance set forth within the context of national sin. National sin and lawlessness. You think of uh, Josiah and the discovery of the book of the law and how they were neck deep in sin and this discovery brought them to repentance at a national level as a corporate level and of course the church is a nation that lives in all nations meant to convert all nations and disciple them so we can apply it that way but abolitionism asks this question how does the gospel of jesus christ and his ever-present ever-penetrating kingdom apply to social issues especially the sin of murder and child sacrifice And people will say, well, we don't need to politicize this. Well, everything's political because Jesus is Lord. And the gospel applies to everything because Jesus is Lord. But how do we apply it to social issues? How do we apply it at the corporate level, the collective level, the collective of people who would identify as, quote, Americans, or people who are uh, Zambians? Uh, You know, as you're a Christian in a nation, Christians in a nation, I air-quoted the wrong word, Christians in a nation. Uh, how do we apply this? How do we apply this gospel to that to that level? When a nation or a state or any sort of governing body, or even just culture broadly speaking, because it's not just America that has this problem. When that happens, when it's when these organizations or cultures are, are engrossed by and overcome with that which God hates, what is the Christian response? Should we even, should there be a Christian response? Or should we just passively, you know, that's a different kingdom, that's a different area, we just kind of, we're here, we can be sequestered to our own little thing, and we can't worry about that, we can just pray. Well, we should pray, but is that it? Well, yes, there should be a, a Christian response. There should be. I'll say it again, abolitionism is the biblical doctrine of repentance set forth within the context of national sin and lawlessness. So we're, we're putting repentance, which obviously starts at the heart individually applied by the Spirit, we're putting it in the context of a widespread problem, a widespread inju- injustice, a widespread sin. So when the gospel is properly understood, abolition is the natural result. Anything short of immediate abolition is compromise and partiality. And we know that God hates partiality. Let's look at our text here. Isaiah chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Isaiah 1 offers up a corrective to the people of God after finding themselves under the judgment, the sovereign judgment of God. Because the social conditions of Israel were so poor, we see in verse 15 that God would hide his eyes from their prayers. You can spread out your hands in prayer, but I'm going to hide my eyes from you. In fact, in verse 15, Yahweh says to Israel, Your hands are full of blood. Your hands are full of blood, meaning they have allowed the culture to deteriorate. And not only have they allowed it, they have actively participated in its deterioration. You can't read the prophets and not see that their main ministry is to address problems and widespread problems as well. Their hands are bloody. Isaiah 1 is a scathing rebuke to the Israelite religion. He hates their festivals and church gatherings. That's verses 13 and 14 above. And and the reason he does that is because he hates and abhors hypocrisy. How can they claim to worship the triune God when they themselves are neck deep in iniquity? Even still, Isaiah 1 is also a promise of grace. We have law and we have grace. They go together. They can turn away from this iniquity by obeying nine commands. These nine commands here are found in our two verses. Once they do, once they figure this out, there is a promise that God makes that they themselves can lay hold of. That's in verse 18. There is a a blessing to possess. That's in verse 19. Or there's a blessing to refuse. There in verse 20. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be eaten by the sword. What beautiful Hebrew imagery. Now, look at verse 16. The nine commands are three groups of three. First, cleansing is required. He says, Wash yourselves, purify yourselves, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. So you have wash yourselves, that's the first thing. Start with you. Wash yourselves. Purify yourselves. Set yourselves apart. And he says, the third thing, remove the evil deeds from the sight of Yahweh God. Now, cleansing itself must touch the heart, the root of man's being. So to start, it has to start with people. When we deal with national sin, we're dealing with people. We're dealing with individuals on a collective level, but we're still dealing with them as individuals. Their hearts, like ours once were, polluted To an extreme degree, they need to be washed. And we continue to need to be washed as we repent and believe each and every day. But it cannot be on the outside only. It cannot be. Whitewashed tombs, right? The thing that Jesus scathed the Pharisees about. So God, we know, judges the thoughts and intentions, not simply the actions. I love what John Calvin said. He said, In the sight of God, who beholds the heart, a depraved conscience pollutes every virtue. Brilliant quote. It, I'll say it differently, but it doesn't matter how many good works someone does. If the heart is darkened, even the virtues are malignant. Sometimes we have to repent of our perceived virtues because they're not done in right, with a righteous heart. We, we could say, I'm being kind to that person when you hate them in your heart. So if it doesn't touch the heart, if the heart is darkened and polluted by something, even the virtues are malignant. And this is an important point for the doctrine of abolitionism, which we'll get to momentarily. But the point here is, is the outward will always come from the inward. The outward change comes from the inward. And if the inward is corrupt, the outward will always be hypocrisy. Every time. Every time. The only way to cure a sin-sick soul is through the power of the Word of God making a dead heart come alive. Abolitionists want hearts to come alive. That's why it's a gospel-centered thing. The inward pollution must be cleansed and purified. Then they'll, make, then they'll be made right in the eyes of Yahweh God. Then, the third command here, their evil deeds can be exposed and thus put away. If your heart is darkened by sin, you don't see clearly. So how can you put it away if you don't know what it is? That's why it starts in the heart, the center of a man. Blind men will always try to veil themselves from the activity of God. They do this because they think that God won't see their iniquity. The inner character of every man, woman, and child is manifested in how they live. The inward character is manifested in how you live. What does a man believe? Then show me how he lives. What do you believe? Show me how you live. That's how you know what you really believe. You can, we're prone to this. We, we can believe one thing, confess one thing, and we live completely different. And that's the problem Isaiah is getting at. You profess to be this, but you're actually this. Your actions are saying that this isn't what you say it is. So repentance here looks like a complete abolition of the act itself and a complete and complete obedience to God's law as the standard for righteousness beginning in the heart. The second set of commands go together. We have here in verse 16 cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, and seek justice. The repentant man or woman or child will do holy violence towards the evil that he has perpetuated, actively or passively. Whether you've, you've been participant actively in the sin, or whether you have passively not dealt with it or been involved in it in calling forth righteousness. And that's why, by the way, it's not enough to have a nice moral opinion about abortion. And we, we get that a lot on the campus, engaging people. Oh, I agree with you. Well, my brother Ron Kronz always says, your nice moral opinion isn't changing things. It's not enough to just have a nice moral opinion. The repentant man who obeys the gospel will stop it at all cost, cutting off the supply lines of sin and abolishing the action immediately. He will not compromise, blame shift, or turn a blind eye. Stop the sin and evil, he says. Seize it. Stop it. Learn, learn to cultivate a new heart and mind in order to do good. So repent of the sin, stop the sin, but learn something else, having a, having a renewed mind, as the Apostle Paul tells us. Having a renewed mind. And then you seek justice. That is, set a different course that aligns with God's covenant demand and commands. So abolish the evil, learn to do good, learn what the good is, what it should look like, And instead of being consistently on the wrong side of proper judgment, determine what is judicially correct based on Yahweh's law and actually put it into practice. See the pattern here? We're going from the heart to the outside. We're going from the mind. We're going out, learning what is good, and then finding what is judicially correct and then putting it into practice. By the way, this is just sanctification. (laughs) I'm just describing sanctification. The third set of commands are lumped together as well. Reprove the ruthless, he says. Execute justice for the orphan and plead for the widow. In this call, all of society must be reformed. All of society must be reformed. The gospel goes into every nook and cranny, all of society. Not just the church as she hides behind the four walls, but the church proper spilling out into the world and the culture. The ruthless oppressors must be set straight, he says. They must, be set, they must be corrected. They must not be permitted to do evil. They must not go unchallenged. Interposition must happen here. The fatherless, like the preborn babies whose fathers are either nowhere to be found or are complicit in the murder, they must be dealt with justly. The fatherless must be dealt with justly. We must care about them. The widow also must have someone plead for, for them, to interpose, interpose for them, to step up and, and aid them. So we had the fatherless and the widow, two categories of people most likely to be exploited by powerful, wicked men. If, ju- if, if justice is absent, the vulnerable are exploited. That's what Isaiah cries out against. That is what Yahweh hates. Those who, are not, those who are most oppressed must be the kind of people that we are protecting the most. Those who are most oppressed must be most protected. We must, after all, be doers of the word. Flip to Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42. I simply want to point out that here we find a prophecy pertaining to the Lord Jesus Christ and his then future coming in the flesh. Isaiah writes roughly 700 years before Jesus actually takes on flesh. Uh, And this is a prophecy about Christ and his ministry and who he is, what he's going to do, and so forth. And we learn here that he is Yahweh's servant in verse 1. He is Yahweh's servant upheld by the power of God. He is also, we're told, the chosen one, in whom my soul is well pleased. God the Father delights in him greatly. We see that on display at Christ's baptism when he was baptized in the baptism of John. Jesus was given the Spirit for the express purpose of bringing justice to the nations. Verse 1. Justice not only in the land of Israel, but justice in all lands, in all nations, in all peoples. The purpose of Christ's coming was to bring the entire world all peoples, languages, and nations, under the authority of God and His Word. Apart from, Christ, apart from Christ, we have chaos. He liked that point. I do too. Apart from Christ, we have chaos. We have disorder. We have bewilderment. With Christ, we have order, we have justice, and we have mercy. Verse 2, Jesus won't cry out or raise His voice because He is not arrogant, but instead humble in disposition. His voice won't be heard in the street, and this simply means because he's not boastful, but humble. A crushed reed or a bruised reed, verse 3, he won't break because the half defeated and broken are to be cared for and lifted up, not despised, crushed, and mangled. Also verse 3, a faintly burning wick will not be extinguished because rather than putting out the faint spark of life, The Lord kindles and He fans the flame. Jesus Christ, in the last part of verse 3, will bring forth justice in truth. God's law word, when thundered from the lips of His people, is like a hammer smashing the prideful hearts of men. And those, those who refuse guidance from the shepherd's staff will soon find themselves under the heavy blow of Christ's rod of iron. Finally, in verse 4, we see the relentlessness of Christ's mission. He, now, he will not faint or be crushed. Does the anvil fold under the weight of a putrid sword? Will, Will Christ be ultimately crushed? Of course not. Can the indefatigable Lord of glory ultimately suffer harm? No. His mission is sure. He intends to establish justice in the earth, verse 4. And as a result, further in verse 4, the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. Of course, they will wait. Of course, the nations are waiting for the law of God. Isaiah 2 says as much. They will soon run out of options for justice because only Christ and his word is just. So, how shall we then live? A question I ask every week, how shall we then live? As you know, I mentioned earlier, I spent four days with 300 other abolitionists from all across the country in the city of Wichita, Kansas. Never been to Kansas. It's very, very flat. (laughs) Truly a flyover state. Michigan's kind of flat, but hilly in some places. Ohio's really flat. Kansas is super flat, (laughs) just so you know. Uh... We were there for the Abolitionist Rising Conference. It was a tremendous, tremendous blessing to be with brothers and sisters and, and people I've known for a while, some new, new people. It was just great. Uh, I mentioned this earlier, but on the, on the first day, we passed out upwards of 50,000 cards. On, we, we went everywhere. If you were at a mall, at a healthcare center, if you were just in the city, you got it. You got it on your car and uh, we wanted to expose the city's bloodlust and idolatry, and it didn't take long before the internet caught on. Certain pro-aborts tried to respond, even threatened to respond, and, but because of their super low energy, couldn't muster much of a response. That's, that's my thing. I got a can thrown at me, but it missed by like 20 feet, and I said, that's that low energy A few Satanists from Kansas City drove down. They did a live stream on Facebook, thumping their self-congratulatory chests. Uh, curiously enough, they showed up. Actually, They actually got a room at the hotel. They got some rooms there. And the one guy who looked really bad had his pillow. And we just thought, isn't that funny? You're standing here, and we're going we're gonna to put you to sleep with the gospel here because you need death and resurrection. Kind of a nice uh, picture there. So they showed up. Uh, they got evangelized pretty heavily. Some of our men stood up and said, okay, let's talk. Um, then they left cursing and spitting. Hail Satan was on their shirt and all that sort of thing. I scared one of my guys because I said, hail the Lord Jesus Christ. He, thought, he said, I thought you were going to say something else. <laughs> nope, nope. They, they never actually met a group of Christians unwilling to back down. The gospel was proclaimed to atheists, agnostics, pagans, humanists, Hindus, Muslims. If, if it's a thing, they were there. <laughs> and I could tell you story after story. I obviously don't have time. But what I want to do here is simply explain what, what the doctrine is a little bit more, uh, the doctrine of abolition, and, and what it looks like in practice. And we can look at text upon text. Just read the prophets. It's everywhere about what God requires of his people. Now remember what I said earlier, abolitionism is the biblical doctrine of repentance set forth in the context of national sin and lawlessness. So what does repentance look like for the people of God in a context where there is widespread sin and iniquity and transgression? Broadly speaking, Christians, generally speaking, they need to be, always be prepared to not only give a defense for the hope that is within them, I think also they need to be ready to give an offense when it comes to injustice. Have a ready defense, Peter tells us, but I think you also have to have a ready offense. You have to be able, and, and the law and the gospel is the offense. The law and the gospel is the, the People get offended by what we do and what we're saying, but your whole life is an offense to God. You can afford to be offended for a minute so that we can see the law of God proclaimed in your heart and your mind, and follow that up with the grace of Christ that he offers. So the law and the gospel is the offense. Proverbs 26, 4 reads, Do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you yourself also be like him. And then the very next verse, Proverbs 26, 5, says this, Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. So what we have in Scripture is a biblical requirement to speak, a biblical requirement to speak in accordance to the folly, thus pointing out his folly and making him humble, the listener. So speak and and use their folly in such a way to, to expose it as folly. And then we have a biblical requirement to refrain from speaking in accordance to their folly, thus keeping us from falling into the snare. Now, wisdom is required to know what the difference is and when to deploy these, these measures, these countermeasures. Moreover, the wisdom we are offering up is the wisdom of the Word of God through the law and through the gospel. Thus, abolitionism is simply the law and the gospel coming into conflict with sin and injustice. When, when, when you think of abolitionism, you, you think evangelism in the context of sin, uh, some people, made up a new word, evangelism and agitation, evangitation. <laughs> I thought that was great. It's the law and the gospel, calling on people to repentance, set forth within this conflict, conflict of sin and injustice. Now, what we do have is the command to speak, and speak we must. Isaiah 58 verse 1 says this, Call out from your throat. Do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet and declare to my people their transgression and to the house of Jacob their sins. When God calls on the prophets, like Jeremiah, he sends them straight to the temple doors. Y'all are trusting in the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. He says it three times in Jeremiah 7. He goes straight to the church, to the people of God, and opens his mouth, opens his throat, and calls for repentance. Now, the church, we, since the church has a prophetic call, just as it has a priestly and kingly call, we must be determined to raise the issue. When lawlessness runs in the streets, the Christians must both speak and act. We are, after all, called to be doers and not merely hearers. Now, go to Isaiah 59 real quick. One of our brothers, a friend of mine, Kevin, preached from this passage. At the, at the conference, and he did a remarkable job on it. Isaiah 59, verse 12. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins answer against us, for our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities. Verse 13. Transgressing. Progressing and denying Yahweh and turning back from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving in and uttering from the heart lying words, justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away, for truth has stumbled in the street and rightness cannot enter. So it is that truth is missing, and he who turns aside from evil makes himself plunder. Then Yahweh saw, and it was evil in his eyes that there was no justice. Verse 16, and he, and he saw that there was no man, and was astonished that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought salvation to him, and his righteousness upheld him. It's interesting. Uh, the impassable God is astonished. Um, it's incredible what we have. We have transgressions multiplied, sins and iniquities known, denying God, oppression and revolt, we have lying words. We have a culture of lies right now. They lied about all of us there. just You, know, you expect that. The Nazis showed up. Yeah, okay, we're Nazis. Go ahead and try to find a swastika somewhere. <laughs> like, it's amazing. They don't actually know. They lie. People lie. And our culture is lying every single day. And God hates a lying tongue. Justice turned back, righteousness far away, truth stumbling in the street. That's a great line from Isaiah. Righteousness unable to enter, truth missing altogether. Where is the truth? Yahweh sees, and, and there's only evil. There's no justice, there's no man to intercede, so forth. That's our culture today. And when a culture apostatizes, which is, again, what we're looking at right now, who will respond? The people of God? Now, to be a Christian is to be, by definition, as I'm arguing, an abolitionist. Because you believe in repentance, and you believe that repentance applies not just to yourself, but to others. And you believe repentance should be set forth in our government buildings and in our businesses everywhere. Christians must conform themselves to the mind of God. That's how, we, that's how we get truth standing upright in the streets. We have to conform ourselves to the mind of God as He has revealed Himself in and through and by His powerful Word. And this includes, friends, we, are, we must learn to abhor what God abhors. It's not enough, again, to have a moral opinion kept to oneself. A man will either be an enemy of evil seeking its dissolution or a friend of evil aiding its perpetuity. We are not afforded the opportunity to be fence-sitters. Neutrality is impossible. You cannot serve two masters. And if we do not respond to the sin of child sacrifice, the sins of the sexual revolution, which are all just big gnarly fruits on the ugly status tree, then our silence will be considered complicity. So abolition is repentance. It's a call for every Christian everywhere to repent for all sins, both committed and omitted. It's a call for Christians everywhere to repent of their general apathy, prayerlessness, lack of zeal, their stumbling in sins like pornography, which aid and abet the abortion industry. We must repent first. That's why we say it as abolitionists, come and repent with us. We're, we're repenting, come and repent with us. To be an abolitionist, which is to say a Christian, is to be a repentant Christian. Abolition is repentance. It's not partiality and compromise like pro-lifeism. And just, I'll say this, I frankly find it personally offensive when I'm called a pro-lifer. I'm offended by that. Because what you're calling me is someone who shows partiality. You're calling me someone who's compromised and inconsistent. And that's what the pro-life movement is. Why would I be offended? Because pro-lifers keep abortion legal just like the pro-aborts. I can't get any of my representatives, senators, you name it, to get back to me so I can educate them, educate them on abolition. We have a bill ready to go in Virginia, which hopefully next year we can get. This year's session's over. It's done. Oh, it's okay. We don't need that bill. We have a pro-life bill. You know, after, the, after 15 weeks, you just can't, you can't kill the little boy or girl. That's compromise. It just is. These pro lifers are the ones that keep abortion legal, and it is still legal in every state in this union. They don't want to abolish abortion. They want to give the appearance of caring about justice, but they want to do it apart from the Word of God, apart from what God demands. And they are not calling for equal protection and equal justice, which is what the Bible calls for. They are not calling for the law to treat the preborn just like the born. They are not calling for repentance both inside and outside the church. They do not want immediate justice, but prolonged, pragmatic, so-called justice. They simply don't understand the law of God, and they do not understand the gospel of God either. They don't know how it applies. That is the pro-life movement. Friends, the gospel by its very nature is intended to abolish anything and everything contrary to it. What does the Holy Spirit do to your heart to bring you to Christ's grace? He abolishes your dead heart. He puts an end to it. He puts it away and he gives you a new one. That's the built-in feature of the gospel. It's what it is. And if your gospel does not include the consequences of the law, both individually and culturally, then your gospel is weak. You want to try to cut out the hard things, the hard topic of repentance and faith and the law of God and the damage done by the covenant of works and the the, because of Adam's disobedience, of course, and, and the grace that we found in God's covenant of grace in Christ. So can we have equal protection without repentance? It's not possible. We cannot have justice without repentance either. We hold to the doctrine of sola abolitio. Abolition alone comports with the call for biblical justice. So yes, we have six solas. As I wrap up, I want to end. I want to summarize for you the Norman statement that just was, was just launched. You can find it at abolitionists, there's an S there, rising.com. And I frankly would encourage you to read it and sign it and it's going to explain more about the, the doctrine of abolition. And, and Lord willing, I had planned to do kind of a whole series on the various points found within the doctrine of abolitionism sometime in the future, Lord, Lord willing. The first thing, and I'm going through these really quick so we can, we can finish. But the first thing is abolitionism is gospel-centered. You can find this on the website, so you don't necessarily have to write these down. But abolitionism is gospel-centered. We're ambassadors of Christ. We have been called to follow our Lord Jesus Christ into the world and we confess that the only answer to the sin of child sacrifice is the gospel. That's why pro-lifers have it wrong. That's why it's been co-opted by the Roman Catholic Church. They have a false gospel, therefore, they're just being consistent with their false gospel. Second, abolitionism insists on the providence of God. Obeying God is always the right answer for everything. Kids, learn that lesson now so that you can spare yourselves any further harm in your life. Because your parents will tell you, yeah, we didn't insist on the providence of God and we didn't obey God and thus this happened. Obedience to God is always the right answer for everything. And as we serve him, his sovereign plan will unfold as Christ defeats his enemies in history, the cause for justice, and he won't go faint. So we trust the sovereignty of God. We trust it. we don't have to compromise to try to maybe get to what we think is obedience. We start with obedience. Third, abolitionism is accomplished by the work of the church, the people of God, the bride of Christ, the the body of Christ must be to some degree or another engaged in the work of the gospel and thus the work of abolition. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone needs to quit their jobs and go full-time on the streets, because that can be the either-or temptation. No, there are various ways, and that's something we can you know, work through. But there are, there are ways to engage in the work. And frankly, uh, having babies and getting them baptized is part of that work. So, here we are. R.C. Sproul once said, When the church is silent in the midst of a holocaust, she ceases to be a real church. Scathing words from Sproul. Fourth, abolitionism is established biblically. It's established biblically. We are people who love the Bible. We do not borrow from humanism in order to, to develop a political theory or anything like that. Rather, we insist on the authority of the sufficient, inspired, and inerrant word of the living God. Abolitionism is established biblically. Fifth, abolition must be sought immediately and without compromise or partiality. This is one of the distinguishing marks of abolitionists over against pro-lifers. Incremental approaches like heartbeat bills, 15-week bans, that's what our governor wants, and I pray that God would give him nightmares until he repents. Incremental approaches are unfaithful approaches, and God hates it. To regulate evil is to compromise on truth, so we reject this altogether. Six, abolition involves national repentance. Think of Daniel interposing in prayer for the nation. He was a righteous man. He wasn't caught up in, in much of what was happening, but he was a part of those people. They were the covenant people, so we must repent. and It involves national repentance in the church and outside the church. And, and I, I think this is fairly obvious, but America is definitely under judgment. We're not waiting for judgment. We've been in it for quite a while. And abortion won't be abolished unless the nation repents. If you're not calling the nation to repentance, you're just dithering around with compromise. Seventh, abolitionism demands equal protection and thus criminalization. Laws are meant to be, laws are meant, we see this in, even in Deuteronomy and Exodus, laws are meant to keep evil at bay. Laws are meant to restrain evil. That's, that's just, it's a feature of, of what a law is. And if mothers and fathers are held accountable to their murderous actions, then the preborn will be treated as the equal image bearers that they are. The pro-life movement wants nothing to do with this. Last year, a bill in Louisiana got squashed when all the pro-lifers got together and put a bill together and said, we won't support it because it wants to punish the mother as it should. Or the father, frankly, and the abortionist. Pro-lifers keep abortion alive and well. Eighth, abolition affirms that God's law is better than man's law and the tyrants are to be Defied. Civil justice is supposed to be in accordance with Scripture. Ninth, abolition is not the same as a pro life movement. I've already pointed that out to some degree. You can't call for justice apart from the Bible. You cannot call for repentance apart from God's law word. Pro lifers peddle false doctrine and thus are the primary obstacle for justice. Why? I'll tell you why. Pro lifism is unbelief, it's unbelief. Lastly, abolitionism is not violent. It's not violent, and it does not advocate for violence. The magistrate possesses the sword, not the church. We have a sword. It's Scripture. We do not do the violence thing. And no matter how many times we set it up and down this week, they're lying. they're lying about us. They're here to do violence. They're doing violence. You don't, again, you don't know what words mean, because the dictionary you have scrambled So you're lying. And guess what? Add that to the list of repentance. (laughs) Now, let me finish here. It seems like all of this is an insurmountable task, just like discipling the nations. But this is a part of that. However, the Lord is calling us to be faithful and obedient in every area of life. He really is. He's calling us to be faithful in every area of life. He's not asking us to do it all on our own. He's not asking us to simply... Uh, you know, sell everything and live on the streets poor and hold a sign and start yelling at people. That's the perception. But he's not. We need to build our families. We need to build, we need to build our businesses. We need to, to uh, plunder the Egyptians, take all their money and start, you know, financing things for righteousness. We need to do those things. Absolutely. But Jesus is asking us to simply live consistently with that which we profess. And he is with us always. So live in repentance while we call the world to repentance. It does no good for the church to call the world to repentance when we're not. When we tolerate a little bit of evil, a little bit of sin. The church must not shy away from the fire of the gospel, nor should she try to quench its flames. Instead, she must be set on fire herself so she can minister to a sick and dying world. Abolition is, the work, is, is work against evil, by men and women set aflame by Christ and his kingdom. It's that simple. And it's, (laughs) to give you a visual, it's the responsibility of the self-conscious church to take the nose of the culture, to bring it up really close to the dunghill of idolatry and make the people smell the filth of their rancid idolatry. But only after we've smelt it first. We have to smell it first. But we can only do so when we live and breathe in repentance and faith, which is why we tell the world, come and repent with us. Father, we pray and ask that your word would not return void. We ask and pray that you would be good to us and righteous. In fact, you always are, but be patient with us, Lord. Bring us to repentance, and I pray that you would, in fact, awaken your people to call them out of iniquity and darkness and unbelief and bring them into the beauty of of your law and your gospel. May you strengthen your church by your Holy Spirit. May you teach us what your word tells about justice and righteousness and truth. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to beat for your glory. We ask this, and we, Father, we ask that you would abolish human abortion. Would you bring the nation and all the nations to the end of themselves, would you bring them to their knees, and may they cry out to you for mercy. And we too cry out to you, Father, in the name of your Son, our Lord, and our King, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.